we'll continue to see increased sophistication with attacks. That's one thing we've definitely recognized over the past couple of years, that hacking organizations are well-funded. They're very singularly focused in what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to make money. And some of the things they're doing, that we can look at ransomware and supply chain attacks, but that's really how they're getting to their payday. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. In a world dependent on digital resources, the rise in cyber attacks has not gone unnoticed. This morning, security officials on alert for possible Russian cyber attacks, not just in Europe, but here in the U.S. And no industry is immune. From healthcare to banking and every small business in between, security breaches are posing problems for people everywhere. Which is why it's more vital than ever for leaders to develop a cybersecurity culture that protects their organizations. And of course, someone to define, implement, and monitor a business defense strategy. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! No, I'm not talking about Superman. I'm talking about your friendly neighborhood CISO the Chief Information Security Officer organizations cannot live without. Hi, and welcome back to Innovation Heroes. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. On today's episode, I've invited back my friend Michael Wilcox, the Vice President of the Office of the CISO at Stratascale, to hear more about what he's learning from our customers, about their challenges in recruiting the business's top security chief. Just in time for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, together, Michael and I will unpack the core challenges, solutions, and practical steps transformational businesses can take to recharge their security posture from the top down. Michael, it's great to have you back on Innovation Heroes. Since you last joined us a year ago, what's been the biggest change you've seen take place in the cybersecurity industry? Hey, Ed, it's great to be back, and I can hardly believe that it's been a full year since we talked. It seems like yesterday, but... A lot has been happening in the cybersecurity space as usual. I guess I'd probably break this down for me, top of mind, like three main things. The first is just the sheer number of breaches and the associated cost. The next is the trends taking place in cybersecurity insurance. And then number three is, and I'm seeing this across the board, is the that a lot of companies are taking a more proactive stance in the way that they strengthen their cybersecurity posture. So like with the cost of a data breach, there's a report that comes out on an annual basis. It's called the cost of a data breach report. And some of the interesting stats from that, number one, just lead with this, is that the average total cost of a data breach is $4.35 million. And that represents an uptick of about 2.6% from last year. And the average cost of a ransomware attack is 4.54 million US dollars. And so those are pretty significant statistics, I think. A lot of those breaches were cloud-based and 19% of breaches occurred because of a compromise at a business partner. So I think that speaks to the importance of, you know, these threats aren't going away and that we're seeing increased sophistication around specific supply chain attacks as well. With the cybersecurity insurance, I've been talking with a lot of security leaders and we're kind of reminiscing about the good old days when it wasn't that hard to get cybersecurity insurance. Going right. through the underwriting process was pretty straightforward, but now we're seeing increased scrutiny from a lot of these cybersecurity insurance providers 
They're hiring experts. And so that process of getting cybersecurity insurance to mitigate or in some cases even remediate that risk, it's becoming a lot more difficult. So some of the stuff that used to be kind of nice to have now is absolutely table stakes, like multi-factor authentication, making sure you have good identity and access management. You need to have a good incident response plan and also make sure that you're doing assessment of third-party vendors as well. So I think that's one of the trends we're seeing kind of as a barometer for how the security landscape is changing is that a lot of those fundamentals are absolutely required now. So the one thing that you mentioned there, the assessment of the third-party vendors, it feels, you know, being in the industry, even from a marketing standpoint, it feels like every 30 minutes or so, there's a new and somewhat viable security solution from a new vendor that seems to hit the market. You know, how does a CISO even begin to evaluate all the security options and the vendors that are out there? I mean, where do they even start and how can you help them? Yeah, if you pulled up a list or actually kind of a graphic of all of the different security companies that are out there. It's a huge eye chart. And there are more and more companies that are being added to the mix every day. You have the gigantic companies that have offered services for quite some time. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is that we have a real focus on innovation now. So some of the larger organizations that we're working with, they're looking at kind of that diffusion of innovation where there may be very early adopters where they want to try out new cutting edge technologies. The bell curve shows that most companies are going to be maybe a year or two behind. And then you've got the laggards too. I don't really see that as much in the space that we deal with. But you know, here at Stratoscale, we have an innovation labs team and they're really focused on those new and emerging technology providers. And we've been doing that with many organizations to say, what are your pain points? What, are you, what do you need to focus on? And we're actually looking outside of traditional technologies to say these are some of the up-and-comers and putting them in touch. And so we've been doing a lot of research in that space. And then just in general, making sure that you've got a good methodology to understand what the current security landscape looks like, identify what your intellectual properties are, where those data sources exist within your environment, and then making sure that you're not trying to boil the ocean, that you're really focused on the right thing. So we're working with a lot of companies to come up with that strategic approach to crawl, walk, run. And in that space, having a good governance, risk, and compliance architecture is really important. And then also being able to do data classification and tagging comes back as well. So as if People couldn't already guess. We're going to mention the word CISO a lot in this session. I just want to make sure in terms of how IT acronyms go, we're definitely clarifying that we're referring to Chief Information Security Officer. So who knows, by the time this podcast comes out, there might be another acronym associated with it. But anyway, one of the key services you provide via Stratascale is a virtual CISO. What exactly is a virtual CISO and why do organizations need one? Yeah, that's really important. You know, in terms of the acronym, you're right. Chief Information Security Officer is what it breaks down to. Some people say CISO. Some people say CISO. I've always said CISO. And I guess just starting before I dive into the virtual description is just understanding what a CISO is. TechTarget is a great online resource for acronyms and technology definitions. And they basically define a CISO as a senior level executive responsible for developing and implementing an information security program. I like to add to that, put a little bit more pepper on that, because a CISO is also responsible for ensuring that the right controls are being implemented to protect the organization's assets. And 
It's an old model, but it's been around a very long time. It's called the CIA Triad, and that stands for confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So CISOs are really looking at that, understanding where data exists, and then looking at the security and safety of employees and business partners as well. But the role of a CISO is so huge. A CISO doesn't have to just understand, like we were talking about all the different logos and all the different companies. That's part of it, but it's way more than that too, because an effective CISO is a well-rounded individual who's going to have to be good at a lot of different things. I think that's why I love being in the security space so much because I'm kind of a self-professed geek or nerd when it comes to different technologies. So application coding and development, understanding how networking works, understanding the components of service desk and e-commerce infrastructure, getting into the nuts and bolts of business continuity and disaster recovery, telecommunications. I mean, the list goes on and on and we get to dabble in all of those things. Right. So it means being expert at security, but also understanding those disciplines really well. And then having the soft skills to lead and manage a team of really highly skilled security practitioners. And then the most effective CISOs also have a strong business acumen where they understand how to present, they're good at budgeting, they know how to model information security risks along with enterprise risk to really kind of reduce the risk of unauthorized access to intellectual properties. And then it is important too, you know, one of these stats because CISOs do have such an important job, the average tenure of a CISO right now is 18 to 26 months. Wow. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is definitely the amount of stress that is being placed on leaders of information security as well. And I think part of that is back to when you asked me about the emerging threat landscape, is that CISOs need to stay abreast of all the megatrends in the security space, but also then the alphabet soup of all the different technologies and trends. Right. And I'm just assuming that I know it's very difficult to hire a CISO and, you know, is it because of how many areas you have to be familiar with? You know, why can't organizations seem to find enough of them these days? I think part of that is the law of supply and demand. If you look at employment in general, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is an interesting resource. And we've heard that across all verticals now is that there's a shortage of qualified personnel, but especially so in the cybersecurity space. And I think a lot of that is because we have so many specific disciplines within cybersecurity, but we've also seen a lot of Fortune 1000 companies really focus on getting somebody into that role. And the math is pretty straightforward. I mean, if you think about you know, how many Fortune 1000 companies are there, well, there's a thousand. And there's a report that I read recently that said that 45% of companies actually don't employ a CISO. Hmm. So as these organizations are looking at the headlines and they're getting the screws tightened down from the board of directors saying, we need to hire a CISO, where do you get that talent? Because it doesn't exist across the board. And a lot of organizations want to have somebody with that tenure. They've got a lot of experience in that seat of understanding how to run a security program because there are so many different aspects. And I think for us, you know, back to what you were asking about with the VCSO, that virtual CISO mm -hmm. role, or sometimes people call it a fractional CISO, we've actually had to respond at Stratascale 
to our customer request because a lot of organizations are saying, we're having a hard time finding a CISO. So you think about a company that says, we need to have a CISO. They start the hiring process. It's not uncommon for the job search process to take six, nine months, or maybe even a year or so. So the question is, if the company's already identified the importance of having that role filled, why leave the seat empty for that period of time? Because an awful lot can happen in six, nine, 12 months. And so a more responsible approach being taken by companies is to hire a virtual CISO, somebody that maybe doesn't put in 40 hours a week, maybe only has to put in 5, 10, 15 hours a week, depending on need. But this individual can actually help interview candidates. And importantly, when the company does find the right qualified candidate and hires them in full time, you haven't wasted that period of time and they can actually help in the transition into that role as well. So virtual CISO uh, capabilities, I think, are really important. And you know, we're, we're very well connected at Stratascale. I have a lot of friends who are CISOs, and I'm seeing this kind of as a trend where companies are saying, let's bring in that fractional talent to help us build the program. You mentioned at the top of the podcast about cybersecurity insurance. You know, How many requirements are there to have a CISO based on that? How much does it differ, I guess my question is, in terms of what a cybersecurity insurance company is going to place on an organization to have a CISO, you know, from a governance perspective? I think depending on the industry that you're in, some of them are very highly regulated. And I've seen that in some industries where you need to have a named chief information security officer. So Mm -hmm. you kind of have to put the check mark in that box. But I think more importantly, it's about ensuring that you have somebody with the responsibility and authority to actually own security for the organization. You know, security is a team sport. It's everybody's job, but that doesn't play well in the highly regulated industries where you need to ensure that somebody is setting strategy. Having that vision, being able to demonstrate a measured progress to security is fundamental. And so these experts that are coming in with the cybersecurity insurance providers want to make sure that they have a named person who has the title in some cases, but that they have the appropriate resources and the strategy for how to reduce risk to the organization. And that's where you need to have a CISO who understands a lot of the technical components, understands the difference between endpoint, server, cloud. And I'm not going to do the acronym soup thing, but it is an important part of that process. And so they're definitely looking at that. Yeah, I want to build off one of the things that you just said there, that it's a team sport and it's everyone's job. But then you deal with end users, right? Who, who probably you know don't realize they're on that team or don't see it as part of their job, right? So how does a CISO ensure that you don't become the team of no? Meaning like, you know, you know that end users are going to look to use the latest and greatest and innovate and go out for cloud-based solutions and use the latest technology they can get their hands on. How important is it to make sure that those folks can still continue to innovate as opposed to just locking everything down and maybe stifling innovation? Yeah, that's a really good point. And we always walk that line. We try to balance usability against security as well. One of my personal philosophies is because security is complex, I like to treat good security like improv. Mm. And instead of blocking the business, 
and saying no, because the business is smart and they have a requirement. They have a need to do something, fill in the blank with something. They're going to figure it out. So instead of blocking the business and saying no, which results in that moniker of Dr. No in air quotes, (laughs) right? 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 Treat security like good improv and use the approach of, it's used in improv of yes and, right? So instead of blocking them where they're going to work around you anyway, is they ask, can we move to the cloud? And you say, yes. And here is how we do it securely. Can we bring in a new technology to gain a competitive advantage? Yes. And here is how we do it securely. So we need to work along with the business and have those relationships. And in some cases, we need to identify the risk. I always say that the CISO really shouldn't be putting their rubber stamp on, yes, we can do this, or no, we can't do this. Instead of answering in that binary yes or no, we actually identify the risks associated. So yes, we can do this, and we've identified these risks. And so if we want to move forward, we need to mitigate this risk, and that may involve investing in new securities, new security technologies, or additional people and processes as well. And then back to the idea of the end users, you know, there's a bunch of terms that I've heard thrown around when it comes to end users. Mm -hmm. I believe in educating end users, but one of those is like an ID10T error. And that, (laughs) if you write it down on a piece of paper, it's an alphanumeric spelling of the word idiot. And unfortunately, it's sometimes used by IT and security professionals to note that the user of a computer has no idea what they're doing. And there's a list of them. There's PEBCAC, which is problem exists between keyboard and chair, Um, (laughs) BFU or BFU, which is a brain-free user. Or sometimes it's not all rosy. If an end user hears the term picnic, maybe kind of driving an insult, which is problem in chair not in computer. (laughs) And I think that, you know, while we can kind of chuckle about that, we do need to treat our users with respect and we need to make sure as security professionals that we're protecting them against attacks. So just a couple quick examples, Ed, if we're implementing data classification, don't ask the users to understand every different type of data and whether it's you know, credit card information or social security numbers. Don't ask them to classify the data manually because how are they going to know and keep track of it? There are technologies and automation capabilities which allow the technology to automatically do data classification and they can put in the appropriate levels of protection to classify, encrypt, and secure the exchange of information behind the scenes. So I think a lot of it we focus when it comes especially to ransomware is the importance of communication and awareness and phishing training, which is hugely important. But I also think it's important to protect our users. We need to filter the garbage out. We need to use technologies that tie into threat intelligence and identify untrusted systems and domains so we can do the filtering before those messages even have a chance to hit the user's inbox. So I mean, really, it's kind of a balance. You need to implement security appropriately, but the business makes the money. They're going to do things in an agile way. And so we need to have a secure architecture and have an approach for how we're going to protect that data. 
and, and I'm going to go back to all of my help desk tickets and ever and see if any of those things were used to describe anything I submitted. So I appreciate that. You mentioned r- ransomware in your answer there. And I know your line of work means you're entering a business that's very often right in the middle of the most stressful situation you can imagine, like right after a hack. Um, can you talk about the big challenges and politics a CISO has to overcome and what that says about the state of IT and security leadership in general? So never let a good crisis go to waste. That is usually when companies invest an awful lot in security. I'm sometimes asked that. I won't mention company names specifically, but the XYZ company was attacked. They had a huge breach. And are you going to stop using them or are you going to use them? I think that's probably the best time is if the management and leadership responded appropriately, they're heavily investing in technology, they're going to be more secure than they've ever been in the past. But many times breaches take place because there's a lack of foundational controls in place. And at the time of a breach, there's a real need to focus on containment and eradication. I think it's kind of human nature, Ed. I'm sure you've seen this too, where you know I've had friends over the years, they end up putting in a security system into their house or their mm. apartment after they've experienced a break-in. But many of us in the security space have that mantra that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it's going to happen. So really, again, the best offense is a strong defense. And a breach can be super challenging for organizations because of all the scrutiny that they are under. They are under the hot lamp. And many CISOs that I talk to recognize that how you respond to a breach is critical. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But the world is watching when you have a breach. And so how you respond to that attack is very important. And that's more than just technology control. So You need to have a leadership team that pulls together with stakeholders, works with everyone who is affected. And for a CISO, this means that you have to have a prioritized and structured approach to identify the points of weakness that allowed the breach to happen in the first place and ensure out of the gate that they are promptly addressed. But if you think about cybersecurity insurance, kind of sprinkling that back in, That may help you get the right forensics experts in place and maybe help you address financial losses, get credit card monitoring. Again, I think a lot of us have, you know, like 20 years worth of monitoring stacked on top because of we've all been affected by different breaches. But the key point is that it does not improve the security program to be in a better state than they were before the breach. And this is where leadership needs to identify there were obstacles, challenges, and roadblocks, and those are going to need to be dealt with. And then where are you going to get the resources from? You you probably didn't have the budget. You didn't have the people before. You didn't have the time to get things done. Everything's under that magnifying glass. So I think for companies that haven't experienced a breach, take that moment. You know, it's not a bad idea to express gratitude for the fact that you haven't been breached, but also recognize You've got the gift of time to build that bridge to a better security program and to the business. So when we walk in, we're all about containment, eradication, identifying what the most critical things are that can help reduce the possibility of that attack from taking place, and then having the ability to measure that progress over time to ensure that we're prioritizing the right investments to protect the business. 
an organization's cybersecurity posture is only as strong as the people leading it. And while no one person is solely responsible for defending a company against cyber attacks, the role of the CISO is becoming more and more important as businesses perform their daily operations in a digital world. And because this is a show about innovation heroes, I wanted to know more from Michael, what makes for a heroic CISO? So this is a show about innovation heroes. Can you tell us what makes for a heroic CISO? You know, what should we all be striving for and asking or expecting of somebody who holds that CISO position? I think for me, I'm fortunate that I get to meet so many leaders of security, so many different CISOs. You know, in the past couple of weeks, I've met with probably eight or 10 and had really good conversations with them. They have different personalities. And I think that's important too, because we recognize that each business is different. When you go to work for a company, the culture may be different than the last company that you worked for, especially in different verticals. So I've kind of recognized different types of CISOs and different types of personalities And respectfully, I mean, you've got some CISOs who come into a highly regulated industry and they need to be that compliance CISO. They need to be able to take and put check marks into the right boxes. You've got SecOps, engineering, architecture type CISOs who are very highly skilled. They have that engineering approach. That's really important as well. I sometimes bump into the CISO who's the voluntold CISO, Mm. you know, they've been doing a good job as a director of network and they need somebody in the security space. And so they're told, well, you're going to be the CISO for the organization. And that kind of puts them outside their comfort zone where they're going to have to learn some different things about the cybersecurity space. And I go on and on. I'll just mention just a couple more off the top of my head. One is the business alliance CISO. You know, we are seeing the role of a BISO, which is a business information security officer who sometimes complements the work that the CISO is doing as well, kind of acting as that liaison between the business and the technical components. And then we also have the risk-based CISO. And risk is something I like to work from a position of risk because I think we need to put the right resources to address the overall risks that a business is facing. But Back to your question about the heroic CISO, I think it's kind of a blend of all these things. So a heroic CISO for me is somebody who continues to move the ball forward in improving the overall cybersecurity posture of their company. And they do this by managing up because they have to report to the board of directors, have those relationships with the executive leadership team. They need to manage sideways because they're going to be working with VPs or C-level, so the chief information officer, VPs of procurement, VPs of different area, but then also managing down effectively as well and really understanding what motivates their employees, what resources they need to be effective as well. And at the end of the day, in cybersecurity, we don't get a lot of high fives (laughs) and we don't get a lot of pats on the back for a job well done. Because oftentimes, a job well done results in a quiet day, right? (laughs) And so a lot of people recognize, oh, okay, nothing to worry about. No fire drill. So it's really a blend of various skill sets where they stay the course and they evangelize security and then they set a vision that other people can follow as well. 
it sounded, forgive a sports analogy, but it sounded like you were describing offensive linemen in football where everybody <laughs> celebrates with the running back and the wide receiver in the end zone and the offensive linemen like run off and only the defensive linemen congratulate them on their way off the field. Right. <laughs> you notice them until something goes wrong, right? He's thinking, well, what about me? <laughs> yeah. There's five of us out here all the time. You know? That's right. So given that it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, let's talk trends. What's the biggest threat you think organizations are facing over the next 12 months and how can the CISO help fight it? We'll continue to see increased sophistication with attacks. That's one thing we've definitely recognized over the past couple of years, that hacking organizations are well-funded. They're like very singularly focused in what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to make money. And some of the things they're doing that we can look at ransomware and supply chain attacks, but that's really how they're getting to their payday. So I think with that, we need to have a strategy for focusing on the fundamentals. We need to do regular baselining of our maturity levels across all of our security domains, and then also recognize the opportunities that we have for improvement you know, instead of it being a conversation about ransomware, it should be a conversation about business continuity and resiliency. If we look at supply chain attacks, we need to understand the criticality. You're only as strong as your weakest link. We have relationships with so many different companies and we're assessing those companies and we're making sure that they have the right security controls in place. Because when you see those breaches for a company, there's not an asterisk that says, oh, by the way, it wasn't the controls that they have in place being compromised. It was a third party company. And because of that, that's how the attackers were able to get in. Right. As you research it, you may find that to be the case. But we ultimately hold that responsibility to vet out all of those opportunities for connection. And so we've been hearing a lot about zero trust. It's an important concept that's been around for over a decade. I believe that recently there's a bit of buzzword fatigue around zero trust and that in some cases it's almost being abused as a silver bullet idea mm -hmm. by some tech companies. But one of the things that we're doing at Stratascale is trying to change the conversation to make sure it's a relevant one. We've been working with a lot of our customers and CISOs to capture their approach in a body of work that we have published. And that's actually available at the Stratascale website. And if you just look for stratascale.com, the path to zero trust, we have published a lot of really good research, which breaks down the pillars of zero trust and actually turns that into kind of an approach that companies can take. Because a lot of CISOs that I'm talking to are saying, I got to have an approach for zero trust. Even if you don't use the words, it's a very powerful way for you to look at how you're doing security in your organization. So I think those trends, um, we need to look at the way that we measure our progress and treat zero trust like more than a buzzword and actually think about the concept of least privilege, ensuring that your users and devices have the appropriate privileges to do their job and no more and that you're doing things like segmentation, that you have the right things in place for understanding data, how it flows, doing that data tagging and classification. And there are a lot of other components, but that, that's one of the areas that Stratascale definitely help with. 
And then my last question, you are dealing with companies of all size, and it seems like you work a lot with Fortune 1000 organizations, but what would you say to smaller size businesses who can't afford or don't have a CISO on their team? You know, Do they need one? And, and why can't the IT leader also be the head of the security efforts on their own? Yeah, that is true. And I do meet with leaders of security all the time. Back to what we've kind of said a few times, security is everybody's job. It's a team sport. People shouldn't be fooled by titles or degrees. Some of the most effective security leaders I've ever met have a title of senior manager, director, even analyst, right? Mm. They are the people who really understand it. There's a quote that I love from John C. Maxwell, who said, know the way, show the way, go the way. And I think all of us who are in the security space, we're kind of evangelists. And many times at smaller companies, the service desk is the security department or the manager of network is the security department. And they still have that complex job of securing the company. They don't have the scaled resource capabilities of the larger organizations like the Fortune 1000. But let's face it, it's the same approach. And it's a very effective approach to understand what you're trying to protect, implement the right controls, and then continually assess new threats while demonstrating measured progress towards achieving that target desired state where you have that balance of available resources and being able to reduce risk. So it's not that these smaller companies need to have a named CISO, but just recognizing who are the security evangelists and recognize and respect them and give them a seat at the table because they probably have some really good ideas and may need some additional conversations with the business in order to get things done. Well said. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. You mentioned stratascale.com. How can people get in touch with you or Stratascale, aside from that, if they need some extra help? LinkedIn is a good resource. So, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. I've been trying to share all of the great work that the team is doing because it is absolutely a team effort with Zero Trust. We have a lot of really smart people and customers working with us on that. So you can follow me on, on LinkedIn. And then also my email address, which is, um, I, I'm sure I'm not going to regret sharing this, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm available at Michael underscore Wilcox at stratascale.com as well. Michael Wilcox, once again, thanks for joining us, especially here in Cybersecurity Month. Thank you, Ed. As the cybersecurity landscape becomes more complex, the need for a dependable and strategic CISO is vital. Cyberspace is an intricate web with many moving parts and an infinite number of potential threats. Having someone to help your organization navigate the complexities and devise strategies to defend your operations will inevitably enhance your security. Remember, you don't need Superman. A trusted CISO with a strong vision and thought leadership will do just fine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Every two weeks, we meet with the unsung heroes who are radically changing the way we live and work in order to tackle the major challenges facing transformational businesses. So tune in to our next episode in two weeks. You won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like button and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Brian Brusis, Christina Clark, and Tobin Dalrymple, with production assistance from Amanda Sheffer-Cavanaugh and Ryan Wetter.